Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Friday, January 13th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at today's weather forecast. This comes from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. A quiet and cool Friday, a nice weekend ahead. Today will generally be a repeat of yesterday, though the wind will be a little lighter. Expect highs in the 20s with widespread cloud coverage this morning. This afternoon, breaks in the clouds are possible. These breaks in the clouds, should they develop, may allow for areas of fog during the overnight hours. This weekend continues to look great with highs around 40 tomorrow and mid-40s on Sunday. Look for the next system to bring rain with it on Monday. Early rainfall estimates are in the quarter to half-inch range. The sun rose this morning at 7.33 a.m., and it sets tonight at 4.58 p.m. Now we have these stories to read on the front page of The Courier today. Private school price tag, $341 million. Waverly opposes carbon pipeline. Check coat pockets for lottery tickets. And we'll begin reading the lead story, Special Counsel Appointed. Garland appoints special counsel to investigate Biden documents. The story comes from the Associated Press and begins with a photograph of Attorney General Merrick Garland speaking on Thursday behind a podium. Dateline, Washington. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Thursday appointed a special counsel to investigate the presence of classified documents found at President Joe Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, and at an unsecured office in Washington, dated from his time as vice president. Robert Hur, a longtime U.S. attorney appointed by former President Donald Trump, will lead the investigation and plans to begin his work soon. His appointment marks the second time in a few months that Garland has appointed a special counsel. Both investigations, including one involving Trump, relate to the handling of classified information. Garland's decision caps a tumultuous week at the White House, where Biden and his team opened the year hoping to celebrate stronger economic news ahead of launching an expected re-election campaign. But the administration faced new challenges Monday, when it acknowledged that sensitive documents were found at the office of Biden's former institute in Washington. The situation intensified by Thursday morning when Biden's attorneys acknowledged that an additional classified document was found at a room in his Wilmington home, later revealed by Biden to be his personal library, along with other documents found in his garage. The attorney general revealed that Biden's lawyers informed the Justice Department of the latest discovery at the president's home on Thursday morning after FBI agents first retrieved documents from the garage in December. Biden told reporters at the White House that he was, quote, cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department's investigation. Quote, we have cooperated closely with the Justice Department throughout this review, and we will continue that cooperation with the special counsel, said Richard Sauber, a lawyer for the president. Quote, we are confident that a thorough review will show that these documents were inadvertently misplaced and the president and his lawyers acted promptly 
upon discovery of this mistake, unquote. Garland said the extraordinary circumstances of the matter required Hur's appointment, adding that the special counsel is authorized to investigate whether any person or entity violated the law. Federal law requires strict handling procedures for classified information, and official records from Biden's time as vice president are considered government property under the Presidential Records Act. Quote, I will conduct the assigned investigation with fair, impartial, and dispassionate judgment, Her said in a statement. Quote, I intend to follow the facts swiftly and thoroughly, without fear or favor, and will honor the trust placed in me to perform this service, unquote. While Garland said the Justice Department received timely notifications from Biden's personal attorneys, after each set of classified documents identified, the White House provided delayed and incomplete notification to the American public about the discoveries. Biden's personal attorneys found the first set of classified and official documents on November 2nd in a locked closet as they cleared out his office at the Penn-Biden Center in Washington, where he worked after he left the vice presidency in 2017 until he launched his presidential campaign in 2019. The attorneys notified the National Archives and Records Administration, which retrieved the documents the next day and referred the matter to the Justice Department. Sauber said Biden's attorneys then underwent a search of other locations where documents could have been transferred after Biden left the vice presidency, including his homes in Wilmington and Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Garland said that on December 20th, the Justice Department was informed that classified documents and official records were located in Biden's Wilmington garage near his Corvette, and FBI agents took custody of them shortly thereafter. A search on Wednesday evening turned up the most recently discovered classified document in Biden's personal library at his home, and the Justice Department was notified Thursday, Garland revealed. The White House only confirmed the discovery of the Penn-Biden Center documents in response to news inquiries Monday, and remained silent on the subsequent search of Biden's homes and the discovery of the garage tranche until Thursday morning. The Justice Department has spent months looking into the retention by Donald Trump of more than 300 documents with classification markings found at the former president's Florida estate. Though the situations are factually and legally different, the discovery of classified documents at locations tied to Biden would almost certainly complicate any prosecution that the government might bring against Trump. New House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a California Republican, said of the latest news, quote, I think Congress has to investigate this, unquote. The top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee requested that intelligence agencies conduct a damage assessment of potentially classified documents. Ohio Representative Mike Turner on Thursday also requested briefings from Garland and the Director of National Intelligence, Arville Avril Haynes, on their reviews by January 26th. Next, a valuable winning lottery ticket could be in your coat pocket. Story filed by the Associated Press. Dateline Des Moines. 
thinking of lining up at the Mini Mart for a shot at $1.35 billion Mega Millions jackpot? Maybe you should first dig into your coat pockets or your car's glove box to make sure you don't already have a winning ticket from an earlier drawing. As players buy Mega Millions tickets ahead of Friday night's drawing, lottery officials throughout the country say that every year players miss out on millions of dollars in prizes they either don't realize they have won or decline to cash in, figuring the trouble isn't worth a small payoff. People nearly always show up for the biggest prizes, but million-dollar payoffs have been waiting for months to be claimed in Texas, Iowa, Minnesota, Michigan, and Washington State. And more than two months after someone in California won a record $2.04 billion Powerball ticket, no winner has been named, though that person still has until November to come forward. Quote, millions of dollars in California lottery prize money go unclaimed each year, something I don't think a lot of people realize, said Carolyn Becker, a deputy director of the California Lottery. Quote, I suspect most of these prizes are for people who never knew they'd won. Maybe they forgot to check their ticket or misplaced it and never saw the outcome of the draw, unquote. Sometimes the delay in cashing in big winning ticket is strategic as players opt to delay coming forward until the next year for tax reasons, said Jake Harris, the player relations manager for the Michigan Lottery. Lottery officials also advise winners of the giant jackpots like the huge payout in California last November to work with financial planners and other advisors before cashing in their winning ticket, as long as they sign their winning ticket and keep it secure. But there are enormous prices that are never claimed. A $1.6 million Powerball ticket sold in Sacramento, California, expired last May. And that same month, Harris said a $1 million Powerball ticket sold in Michigan expired. If a winner of a Powerball or Mega Millions grand prize doesn't come forward, the money is returned to the state lotteries in proportion to their sales. For smaller prizes of these games or the state lottery games, the states have different rules for unclaimed prize winnings. In both California and Michigan, the money goes to a school aid fund, as do other lottery profits. Other states roll the money into future prizes, divert it into the general state budget, or use it for different specific uses. Quote, we want our players that win prizes to get their prizes. But in the event they do expire, they do go to the school aid fund, which is helping all throughout the state K-12 programs and public education initiatives, Harris said. Quote, so I guess there is a silver lining if you want to look at it that way, unquote. The fiscal year 2021 in Michigan, the last year when data was available, about $78 million, or 1.6% of sales, went unclaimed, Harris said. That includes winnings from scratch games as well as the draw games, like Mega Millions and Powerball. Michigan still has a couple $1 million tickets sold in October that haven't been turned in. In Iowa, lottery officials have been waiting more than four months for someone to turn in a $1 million Mega Millions ticket sold in Ames, not far from the Iowa State University campus. In fiscal year 2022, 
$1.5 million in prizes from games like Mega Millions and Powerball went unclaimed in Iowa, said Mary Neubauer, a vice president at the Iowa Lottery. Quote, we want all our winners to claim the prizes they legitimately won, Neubauer said. Throughout any given year, we send out reminders about large unclaimed prizes to call attention to them and remind people to double-check their tickets. We're always hoping we'll jog a winner's memory in time for them to claim their winnings, unquote. Time is ticking away in Texas for two people who bought Mega Millions tickets worth $1 million each on July 29th at a gas station in Plano and Prairie View. Players in Texas have 180 days to claim prizes, meaning that if no one turns in the tickets by January 25th, the money will revert to the state. In Minnesota, a $1 million Mega Millions ticket sold last July in a Minneapolis suburb remains unclaimed. And in Washington, a $1 million Powerball ticket sold in Airway Heights near Spokane last November is still out there somewhere. The record for unclaimed prize in the U.S. appears to be a $77 million Powerball prize bought in Georgia that saw its 100-day time limit expire in 2011. Nebraska Lottery spokesperson Neil Watson said the state had $3.7 million in unclaimed prizes in the last fiscal year, which was a little higher than usual. And he noted that in 2021, an $86,000 ticket for a state draw game expired. Still, Watson said, someone usually shows up with a ticket for the biggest prizes. Quote, funny thing, when you win millions of dollars, people want to claim it, he said. Next, we have a story filed by Andy Malone. Waverly joins other agencies in opposing carbon pipeline. And the story begins with a photograph of the exterior of the Waverly City Hall building. The dateline is Waverly. Bremer County's largest municipality has joined a growing list of agencies and individuals to formally oppose a company's proposal to build a hazardous carbon pipeline. The Waverly City Council reportedly heard from constituents about the hot-button issue. Two councillors stated at Monday's meeting that originally they questioned how the Navigator CO2 Ventures product concerns the city when the proposed route does not pass within its boundaries. But the resolution detailing the council's objection ultimately passed 6-0 to and is being submitted to the Iowa Utilities Board, the state agency making the determination on whether the company and its project are granted a permit. Councillor Tim Kansas was absent. Three companies are proposing to build pipelines in Iowa. Navigator is the focus in northeast Iowa, as its pipeline is proposed to pass through Butler, Floyd, Bremer, Buchanan, Hardin, Franklin, Fayette, and Delaware counties. Additionally, the council voted 6-0 to in favor of a resolution supporting Bremer County's proposed ordinance with zoning and land use regulations relating to pipelines. That details setbacks from certain structures and emergency response requirements in preparation for the possibility of a pipeline rupture.
that has become a well-known worry because of an incident involving a pipeline near the village of Satarshia, Mississippi, after learning about the rupture in 2020, reportedly leaving 49 people hospitalized and causing a few hundred people to evacuate, Counselor Ann Rath said it, quote, made me really think about the potential impact on our city, not just that citizens might be sick or injured, but that our first responders, our fire department, our ambulance crew, etc., are going to be responding, unquote. She added that the council needs to think about its relationship with Bremer County and other smaller cities, as well as the potential impact of a pipeline on economic and housing development and other issues of importance like property values. Quote, I think it's important for us to talk about it and to think about it as a bigger picture and not just us isolated within the city limits, said Rath. Councillor Matthew Snyder also noted the potential long-term implications, including the stifling of developments on the north end of the city. Quote, we're really wanting to grow the north side of the city, he said. I wouldn't be too anxious about building a home that's a half a mile from a pipeline like this, unquote. Jerry Dove, a member of the Bremer County Planning and Zoning Commission, said the commissioners, with the help of staff and a specialized attorney, crafted a proposed ordinance which still needs approval from the Board of Supervisors. The proposal includes controls that fall within the county's jurisdiction, determining the direction of economic growth, physically and fiscally, and protecting the safety and well-being of residents. The commission was, quote, not trying to create a brick wall through the county, he said, but acknowledged that the ordinance could put the county at risk of being sued by Navigator. When Story County and Shelby County passed their ordinances, Dove said, quote, they were sued the following day in federal court by the pipeline companies. Is that going to be the same path we're on? Very likely, unquote. Dove noted the entire emergency medical system in Bremer County is befuddled by the potential project and planning for a response. Federal tax incentives coming out of last year's Inflation Reduction Act are one driver behind the project. Another is a hope of reducing the carbon footprint of ethanol plants. The Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration has been working to develop safety regulations since the Satarthia incident, Dove said. Now we have the story that appears at the top of the front page. Private school price tag, $341 million. This story was filed by Aaron Murphy. Opponents and supporters of taxpayer funding for schools flood hearing, Dateline Des Moines. A proposal to devote $341 million in taxpayer funding annually to Iowa families who want their children to attend private school drew a big crowd Thursday at the Iowa Capitol. The first legislative hearing on Governor Kim Reynolds' proposal drew dozens upon dozens of Iowans. Seating in the hearing room was filled 50 minutes before the meeting started, and by the time it was underway, the room was packed and the line of speakers spilled into the hallways of the Capitol basement. The 90-minute hearing was filled by individuals who, at the request of the legislators running the meeting, alternated between those for and against the proposal. 
One speaker near the end of the meeting said she was roughly the halfway point of the line of speakers opposed to the bill. The comments largely were consistent with what so many others have said during this debate. Supporters say the funding is needed to give more family an opportunity with state assistance to send their children to private rather than public schools. Quote, we know there are many parents who would choose a private school if given the option, said Greg Baker with the Church Ambassador Network, which was created by the Christian conservative organization The Family Leader. Opponents say the state should be focused on supporting public education and that those schools will suffer under the proposal. Quote, we need to remember in the end that this is about all of our children, said Sue Murphy of Ankeny, an opponent who said she has six grandchildren who attend a mixture of public and private schools. Under the proposal, roughly $7,600 in state funding, the amount the state spends per pupil on K-12 education, would be set aside for any student who attends a private school in Iowa. The money would be used for tuition, books, and other classroom materials, fees, and other expenses. Public schools would lose the per-pupil funding for any student who choose to attend a private school. However, the legislation also provides to each school district roughly $1,200 for every student who lives in the district but attends a private school. That funding is devoted whether the private school student is a recent transfer or has always attended private school. The average annual cost of parochial school tuition in Iowa ranges roughly between $2,800 and $6,000 for elementary students and $6,000 to $9,000 for high school, according to multiple parochial school organizations. There were 33,692 students enrolled in 183 private schools in Iowa for the 2022-23 school year, according to State Education Department data. The program would be phased in over three years, giving first preference to low-income families. By the third year, all Iowa private school students would be eligible for the funding with no income restrictions. The governor's office estimates the state will spend $107 million in the program's first year. By full implementation in the fourth year, the state will spend $341 million annually. Reynolds's latest proposal is an expansion of her previous proposals that did not have sufficient support in the Iowa legislature each of the past two years, despite strong Republican majorities in both the House and the Senate. But in the House, where the proposal stalled each of the past two years, this week Republican Speaker Pat Grassley said he feels confident we'll have the support to pass Reynolds's new proposal. Public K-12 education funding comprises the largest portion of Iowa's general fund budget annually, 43% in the 2021 state budget year, and 42% of Reynolds' current proposal for the next state budget year that starts July 1st, according to the state's nonpartisan fiscal and legal analysis agency. Reynolds' budget proposes a total of 34 billion dollars in general school aid to K-12 public schools. Quote, 
There is no diversion of money from public schools to private schools. That is not true. No matter how many times it's said, it's not true. This is not a zero-sum game, said Senator Ken Rosenboom, a Republican from Oskaloosa, who this year is the new chair of the Senate Education Committee. Underscoring the $1,200 per private school student funding to public districts. Quote, we in the legislature have always supported public schools and will continue to do so, unquote. But Senator Herman Quambach, a d- Democrat from Ames and a former Iowa State University professor, said that, quote, we've got to get our priorities right. The public sector is responsible for the public schools and we're not doing our duty, unquote. Majority Republicans advanced the proposal to the next step in the legislative process, making it eligible for consideration by the full Senate Education Committee. A public hearing on the proposal will be held at 5 p.m. Tuesday at the Iowa Capitol. And now when we turn the page, we find ourselves in the Cedar Valley section, and that page begins with a beautiful color photograph of a female cardinal perched on a tree at George Wyeth State Park in Waterloo last week. The first story we're going to read is titled, Casino Assault Brings Lesser Verdict. Prosecutors Sought to Convict Man of a Felony. This story was filed by Jeff Reinitz of the Courier Staff. Dateline Waterloo. A Waterloo man has been found guilty of misdemeanor in a 2021 attack at Waterloo Casino that cost another man his eye. Prosecutors had sought to convict Damon Jamar Williams Sr., 46, on a charge of willful injury causing serious injury, a felony that carries up to 10 years behind bars. Instead, a Black Hawk County jury on Thursday found Williams guilty of the lesser charge of assault causing bodily injury following half a day of deliberations. The charge is a serious misdemeanor punished by up to a year in jail and a $2,500 fine. The January 3, 2021 assault resulted in a broken orbital bone and jawbone and other injuries for Montana Genhus of Evansdale. Pressure from the swelling cut off the optic nerve, leaving him blind in his right eye, according to doctors. The attack also resulted in a $1.7 million civil judgment in the suit Gunhus brought against the Isle Casino because staff failed to intervene in the beating. The attack was captured on the casino's extensive video surveillance system. Prosecutor Heather Jackson said she counted 10 punches and 5 kicks to Gunhus, helpless on the floor, in the 25 seconds before Williams decided to break off the beating and walked away. Authorities said Williams was upset that Gunhus had found his wife's player loyalty card in the slot machine and had used $100 in free play credits. Williams took the stand in his own defense during a trial on Wednesday. He said he was frustrated the casino wasn't going to replace the lost credits and hit Gunhus for the principle of him taking something that didn't belong to him, unquote. He also said he didn't intend to cause extensive injuries. The arrest also cost Williams his job working with disabled residents, according to testimony. Defense attorney Jared Knapp argued 
during closing that the state didn't prove the attack was responsible for Gunhuss's loss of sight. Sentencing will be at a later date. Next, in an update filed by Jeff Reinitz, jury convicts man on lesser charge in apartment fire, and it begins with a photograph of that apartment showing no fire damage, but there's a fire truck and firefighters in the foreground. Dateline Waterloo. A jury has ruled that a Waterloo man was careless but wasn't trying to destroy an apartment building when he lit a fire after being evicted in October. Timothy Aaron Williams, 40, had been charged with second-degree arson, a felony. Testimony in his trial started Wednesday. On Thursday, jurors found Williams guilty on the lesser charge of reckless use of fire, a misdemeanor, a charge that the defense had conceded. Quote, he was taking actions to extinguish it. He made a mistake and he was doing what he can to correct his mistake. Defense attorney Matthew Hoffey said, Prosecutors allege Williams used a butane torch lighter to set a fire around the back window of his apartment at 828 West 4th Street, an older home divided into apartments, on the day he was supposed to move out for failing to pay rent. Damage was limited to a small section of space inside the exterior wall. On Thursday, jurors got their first glimpse of the defense during closing arguments. Hoffey agreed that Williams was guilty of a lesser offense of reckless use of fire and said the facts didn't mesh with the arson charge. He noted that Williams still had his belongings in the building and was moving them out in a grocery cart when firefighters arrived. Quote, is he going to light the place up with all his stuff in there? Hoffey said. Hoffey said Williams told police he used water on the fire and attempted to smother it with a towel. Assistant County Attorney Charity Sullivan said Williams was trying to damage the building because he used a torch lighter, which puts out a 3,500-degree flame on the old wood siding. Quote, he put flame on that actual building, Sullivan said. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't an accident, unquote. She noted that he had to activate the lighter and then hold it to the wood long enough for it to catch. Williams also didn't warn the seven other people in the building, and he wasn't actually putting out the fire when the fire department arrived, Sullivan said. Jurors began deliberating for about half a day Thursday before issuing the verdict. Sentencing will be at a later date. And now, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 13th on IRIS the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, since the Courier has no obituaries listed today, we'll turn now to the opinion section. Our first editorial was written by Art Cullen and appeared in the Storm Lake Times pilot, titled, We Have Survived the Full Body Slam. What a weird run we've been on the past few years with the double whammy of COVID and Donald Trump. The aftershocks of deep changes to our lives reverberate still. The House finally elected a speaker with the 15th ballot on the second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, in which Kevin McCarthy himself denied the results of the 2020 presidential election. A government shutdown could result with the lower chamber directed by representatives 
who voted not to certify President Joe Biden's election. Trump had to call in to the House floor on McCarthy's behalf. Images of Trump standing on the veranda at the White House in an orange glow after his release from the hospital with COVID rose to mind. He just stood there, suggesting invincibility, yet looking as if he might fall over. Storm Lake was getting walloped by the pandemic. People were dying every week. The meatpacking plants were ravaged. Walmart ran out of toilet paper overnight. Newell Fonda won the girls' state tournament again, and then that was all she wrote. Some businesses went under. We nearly did. The government came out with the biggest relief program since the Great Depression. Most of us survived because of it. During this time, Steve King, our congressman for 20 years, was unseated in a Republican primary because of his comments on race and culture. J.D. Shulton, who nearly beat King in 2018, was forced to stage drive-in campaign events at Frank Star Park, where he spoke into a microphone and diehards in cars tuned in on FM radio. Shulton got walloped by Randy Feenstra, a more polite version of King. There were those daily COVID briefings where Trump would contradict the medical experts standing next to him as the president talked up his latest snake oil cure. You couldn't go to church. Catholics yearned for Holy Communion. Who would have thought that you could not get communion? Michelle Obama made a brief return as First Lady, in the absence of one, to counsel the nation on having the COVID blues. Doctors here confirmed that they saw an increase in depression. It is depressing, sitting at home, looking out the window, wishing you were anyplace else, doing something. Relationships changed or ended. Zooming became a verb. Remote work became a real thing. I, for one, got used to it. I fancy myself living the writer's life. It's been a good thing, sort of a dream come true, really. That, and voters told Trump to take his act back to Mar-a-Lago. They chose Biden and cooperation over Trump and violent treason. Voters liked the infrastructure bill. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell last week shook hands with President Biden over a new bridge to connect Ohio and Kentucky, while the House Republicans fought yesterday's battles. Senator Joni Ernst was one of a dozen Republicans to vote for protecting gay and interracial marriages, which drew a rebuke from the Pocahontas County Republican Central Committee. There are signs of moderation that made Ernst feel comfortable enough to be sensible. At one point, oil prices went into negative territory when interest rates were at zero. We worried that we couldn't get paper to print because of huge supply chain kinks. You couldn't even think about looking at a new car on a lot because they weren't there. They still aren't. Newsprint prices are stabilizing. Oil shot up as the economy came back along with grocery prices. Then interest rates ratcheted up to combat inflation. Meat packers raised wages significantly over the past five years, from about $16 per hour to start, to nearly $22 per hour starting wage now, plus with better health care benefits. Restaurants have come back, but dining is down nearly 20% from pre-pandemic times. Takeout is way up. Inflation is subsiding. Congress did big bipartisan things, like reshoring computer chip making to the USA from Asia. 
we are beginning to address climate change. Our saber-rattling with China over trade is subsiding, and China has trouble all its own coping with a wave of COVID. The insurrection was driven, at least in part, by the frustration of the pandemic cast on a motif of fear. Many of the participants are thinking about it from jail. Voters called again for moderation in the November midterm election. Democracy holds on as aimless rebels are shunted aside. Trump's popularity is waning. Costs are coming down as job creation holds up pretty well. The sun came out clear on Friday. It seemed like we had been living in a cold gray cloud for so long that 24 degrees felt like May. The brave men and women who defended democracy two years ago embraced President Biden as he gave them medals for their valor. Zealotry is not having its finest hour. Supply is finding demand. Iowa has COVID under control as deaths and hospitalizations decline. You would like to think that the fever has broken. Our next opinion piece comes from the New York Times, author Charles M. Blow. The Fraudulence of Investigating the Investigators Republicans have decided to hound the hounds, understanding that they can't throw federal investigators off the trail of multiple conservatives, including and perhaps principally Donald Trump. They have decided to complicate those investigations by kicking up so much dust that the public has a hard time discerning fact from fiction. This week, Republicans in the House of Representatives moved quickly to approve the formation of their so-called Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, a panel intended to investigate the federal agencies the Republicans claim are targeting conservatives. As the New York Times wrote, quote, the panel has such broad reach that it could become a main instrument for Republicans to go after the Biden administration, potentially prompting showdowns over access to highly classified information and the details of criminal inquiries, unquote. But let's be clear. The Republicans are using a fundamentally Trumpian tactic, accusing others of that which one is guilty of. It was Donald Trump, not the Democrats, who attempted to weaponize the federal government against his enemies. Trump's second White House chief of staff, John F. Kelly, told the Times that Trump repeatedly told him he wanted the Internal Revenue Service to investigate his political enemies. A former Defense Secretary, Mark T. Esper, wrote in his memoir published last year that Trump wanted the Pentagon to court-martial the retired military leaders Stanley McChrystal and William H. McRaven, who had criticized Trump. According to New York Times reporter Michael C. Bender's book, titled, Frankly, We Did Win This Election, the inside story of how Trump lost. Trump repeatedly pressed law enforcement officials to crush unrest by American citizens during the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, saying the way to, quote, handle these people was to crack their skulls, unquote. And this all came well before the violent insurrection of January 6th, which Trump helped incite. The Federal Bureau of Investigation and Department of Justice institutions that sometimes stood in Trump's way while he was in office, are now investigating him and others 
who may have committed crimes in service to him or out of loyalty to him. These investigations have, of course, drawn Tump's ire and made many Republicans nervous about their own culpability. So, in true Trump fashion, they accuse anyone looking into the possibility of their corruption of being corrupt. They spin conspiracy theories into actual contempt. I believe Republicans are attempting to provide a counterweight to the damning evidence and testimony made public by the January 6th committee. They plan to concoct an equivalency. As part of their quest to punish the agencies attempting to hold them accountable, the party of law and order plans to go after federal law enforcement. This is how you know that the support for the Blue Lives Matter movement was a charade. They simply wanted to shield officers who disproportionately killed black people. For them, law enforcement has always been a tool for the control and restraint of the other. When law enforcement attempted to control and restrain them, they cried foul. How dare the Justice Department equally apply the law? That wasn't the plan. That wasn't the design. Another tactic Republicans have started to use in recent years is the co-option of virtue, the stealing of civil rights language, the invoking of righteous causes of the past to justify their own corrupt efforts. Republicans are comparing their new committee, one representative, Ayanna Presley, correctly called an Insurrection Protection Committee, to the Church Committee of the 1970s, a legitimate bipartisan fact-finding effort that uncovered a wide range of federal abuses by agents who had targeted civil rights organizations such as the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, activists protesting the Vietnam War, and individuals such as Martin Luther King. This new committee is no church committee. It's a coven of conspiracy theorists. Even Glenn Beck, remember that guy? Seemed to realize that Republicans had nothing but conspiracies to support their outlandish claims about the federal government. Just recently, he used the church committee to instill hope in his listeners, reassuring them that the wild speculation they have heard from House Republicans lately could one day congeal into something solid, as it did with the church committee. This new House Select Committee will reportedly begin by going after federal agents who tried to clamp down on unruly and sometimes violent protests over liberal school board policies by allegedly labeling some of the parents involved domestic terrorists. As the Associated Press pointed out, there is no evidence that this ever happened. This, too, is a Trumpian tactic. To link Trump's troubles to those of his followers, to create a sense they are all comrades in arms, doing battle against the same enemy. But I believe the Republican grievances with federal law enforcement are rooted in something deeper than Trump's issues and the issues of complicit members of Congress. I believe it cuts to the core of conservatism and the cancer that has been allowed to grow on it. Attorney General Merrick B. Garland told senators in 2021, that the greatest domestic threat facing the United States came from radically or ethnically motivated violent extremists, specifically those who advocated for the superiority of the white race, unquote. Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, specifically pointed out that, quote, 
the danger and lethality of the threat posed by domestic violence extremism is evidenced by the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol and other recent attacks across our country, including against government buildings, federal personnel, and communities of color, unquote. Republicans would later start talking about ousting Mayorkas for his approach to border control, but his calling attention to the connection between domestic violent extremism and the Trump mob that stormed the Capitol most likely only added to their bloodlust to remove him. One of the first things to happen under the new Republican majority in the House was a Texas Republican, Representative Pat Fallon, filing articles of impeachment against Mayorkas. Talk about weaponizing the federal government. And now let's continue reading local news from The Courier, and we will continue reading the articles on the Cedar Valley page. University of Northern Iowa and DMACC announce Articulation Agreement Hybrid Accounting Program, story filed by Courier staff, and it begins with a photograph of University of Northern Iowa President Mark Nook and Rob Denson, President of Des Moines Area Community College, on Wednesday, formally announced an articulation agreement and expansion of a hybrid accounting program. Dateline Des Moines. The University of Northern Iowa and Des Moines Area Community College formally announced an articulation agreement Wednesday related to its Uni at DMAC partnership. Officials also announced the recent expansion of UNI's hybrid Bachelor of Arts in Accounting to be offered through the community college. The hybrid accounting program provides place-bound adult learners with the convenience of online courses coupled with in-person evening accounting courses at DMAX Urban Campus in downtown Des Moines. With the formal agreement, those who have earned an associate's degree are offered a pathway toward the completion of a UNI bachelor's degree. It's the first program in the UNI at DMAC partnership to offer a hybrid program with in-person courses at the community college. Quote, we're excited to launch this flexible and accessible option for students in the Des Moines area to further their pursuit of a bachelor's degree. UNI President Mark Nook said in a news release, quote, Today, there are six times more jobs openings in accounting than qualified accounting graduates. It's through this partnership that UNI continues to meet Iowa's workforce demands, unquote. Quote, Our accounting program has been an innovator and leader in the industry for decades, and it's with great enthusiasm that we bring our tradition of excellence to Des Moines through this partnership, UNI College of Business Dean Leslie Wilson said in the release, quote, Iowa is experiencing a severe shortage of accounting professionals, and I applaud the willingness of our accounting department to pursue new avenues like this hybrid program to serve Iowa, unquote. Quote, when we launched UNI at DMAC in 2019, we spoke about the need for collaboration between our two outstanding institutions right here in Des Moines, said DMAC President Rob Denson in the release, encouraging students to complete their bachelor's degree through the program. More information about UNI's hybrid BA accounting program 
is available online at online.uni.edu slash accounting. A 30-minute informational webinar on the program will be held on January 25th. Topics covered will include the program overview and course sequence, delivery methods and scholarships, as well as next steps and the application process. For more information about UNI at DMAC, can be found online at belong.uni.edu slash DMACC. Next in Waverly, we have Gertst set to lead Waverly Health Center. The Waverly Health Center Board of Trustees has chosen Jody Geets as the new Chief Executive Officer of Waverly Health Center. Gertz has been a senior leader in the organization as the Chief Nursing Officer since August of 2018. Gertz previously worked for Unity Point Health as an Executive Director of Regulatory and Risk Management and Director of Emergency Services. Prior to that, she served in the Chief Nursing Officer roles for both Henry County Health Center in Mount Pleasant and Mercy Medical Center in New Hampton. Gertz holds a Master's in Business Administration, a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing, and is a certified professional in healthcare quality. Quote, Jody's lifelong commitment to serving patients is a great fit for the health center and where we're headed, stated Phil Jones, WHC Board of Trustees Chair. Quote, she is passionate about our patients, providers, staff, and community. She has been hard at work with the team over the last several years as CNO, the past few months as interim CEO, and now as CEO. This will ensure WHC continues to grow and evolve to meet the needs of the people we serve, unquote. Now let's look at the sports page, and the top article is under the topic of women's basketball, titled, McDermott Floats UNI, College Women's Basketball, McDermott Last Second Jumper Lifts UNI Past Drake. This is a staff report that begins with the photograph of McDermott. Dateline Des Moines, Maya McDermott drove down the right side of the lane and then lifted off the ground while simultaneously floating a one-handed shot toward the rim. The shot hit nothing but net as the Northern Iowa point guard's last second shot with .03 seconds left lifted the Panthers 9-5 overall, 4-1 in the MVC, to a 70-69 win over Drake Wednesday in the Missouri Valley Conference women's basketball action. Quote, it was another great team win, UNI head coach Tanya Warren said. I thought we were relentless. We weren't perfect, but we stayed true to our game. We got big stops when we needed to. We made big shots when we needed to. I think we got down nine. We didn't hang our heads. We just kept chipping away and got good minutes from a lot of people. Miles had some really good games, but I thought that was probably the best second half she's played in her career. Just a terrific and gritty effort from everyone, unquote. McDermott's game winner allowed her to finish with a game-high 19 points as she also dished out sixth assists and committed just one turnover. Grace Bofelli added 11 points and 11 rebounds, while Taryn Wharton 
scored 10 points off the bench. You and I was tremendous on defense, recording 10 blocked shots, four each by Cynthia Wolfe and Riley Goble. The Panthers also recorded 12 steals, with Emerson Green leading the way with four. Drake had three players score 12 points, Katie Dinnebrier, Grace Berg, and Taylor McCauley. The Bulldogs, 8-5 and five and 3-2, and two, got off to a hot start and lead 18-9 after the first quarter, and led by as much as eight with three minutes and 39 seconds left in the second quarter, and led by five at the break, 35-30. to 30. Drake stretched its lead back to eight to open the third quarter on the Macaulay three-pointer before you and I went on a 9-0 to zero run with the Panthers taking their first lead since 7-5 to five at 4-16 of the first quarter on a green jumper. Drake answered with a Maggie Beyer jumper, but then Keba Laube hit a tray and Grace Bofelli gave you and I its biggest lead of the game, 44-40, to 40, with a layup. Then, with the game tied at 47-all, Drake went on an 8-0 run and led 57-50 after three. A McDermott three-pointer gave you and I a 66-63 lead with 1 minute 22 seconds left, and then the two teams traded big shots down the stretch, culminating in a thrilling finish. With four seconds left, Sarah Beth Goldner scored to give Drake a 69-68 lead, and the Panthers called a 30-second timeout. You and I inbounded the ball to McDermott, and she did the rest. The Panthers are next in action on Sunday at Evansville. Next, we have an article written by Josh DeBau of the Associated Press. 49ers rookie quarterback Brock Purdy set for first playoff test, and it begins with a photograph of Brock Purdy getting ready to make a pass. Brock Purdy has passed every test he's faced so far in his remarkable rookie season, coming off the bench with no reps after Jimmy Garoppolo got hurt, matching up against an all-time great like Tom Brady. His first road start in an intimidating stadium in Seattle coming from behind against the Raiders. Next up for Purdy and the San Francisco 49ers is his first playoff game on Saturday against the Seahawks. Quote, I'm not trying to make it bigger than what it is, Purdy said Wednesday. Quote, obviously, there's more on the line and everything. But I think having six games under my belt in terms of just playing in an NFL game and trying to win for four quarters has helped me get to this point and all the guys in the locker room have my back. We've all grown together, and we're ready for what's ahead, unquote. Purdy's journey from being Mr. Irrelevant as the last pick in the NFL draft to perhaps the most important player on a Super Bowl contender has been an improbable one. Purdy keeps reaching new milestones in every start as he piles up touchdown passes and wins, putting him in company with some heralded quarterbacks from the past. Purdy is the first rookie quarterback since Ben Roethlisberger to win his first five starts, joined Justin Herbert as the only rookie quarterbacks to throw multiple touchdown passes in at least six straight games, and has posted a 119 passer rating 
in his first five starts for the second-best mark for any quarterback in the Super Bowl era, behind 131.4 for Hall of Famer Kurt Warner. With a win on Saturday, Purdy will be the first rookie quarterback drafted after the first round to win a playoff game since third-rounder Russell Wilson did it for Seattle in 2012. Quote, I feel like I'll do a lot of reflecting after the season, Purdy said. Right now, I'm looking at it like, man, we've got the Seahawks. Yes, it's playoffs, but for myself, it's I have to do my job. And now, friends, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 13th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading and those of other newspapers around Iowa on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. Music